Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. So I'm glad you're here. We've been in a series, uh, we're spending the summer in Romans chapter Eight. I, I, every single one of you here today, I guarantee you, no matter your background or your experience with church or spirituality, whatever it may be, you know very keenly the power of words. You know what it's like when someone speaks something over you that you can't seem to shake, whether that be accusations or assumptions about you, misconceptions. You've probably felt the weight of what happens when people weaponize their words against you. Maybe you have had that happen this week, maybe even today, and that comes to mind, and you feel it just as much as you remember it. I mean, I can think about specific moments. I don't know why I would remember them so well, other than the fact that I remember someone said something that hurt me. But I also know the power of words on the other side as well. I know that I have been in some of the deepest depths of hardship and being depressed and just simple words of encouragement from people oftentimes in this community have brought me out of some darkness, have spoken life into me in ways that have changed sometimes just the trajectory of my day, sometimes the trajectory of my journey in that moment, maybe even my life. Powerful, powerful, powerful words. And the reason why we're looking at Romans 8 is because Romans 8 is that for us. It is God's hope and identity that is spoken over us, spoken to us and in us. It's good news that helps us hear and reorient who we are, the very fabric of our identity around God's word spoken to us. And in a world where you and I have had so many things spoken about us and to us and over us, maybe even here recently, we need to remember, we need to come together and remember what God has declared over us as sons and daughters of God. A couple of weeks ago, Casey, he, he began our series in, Roman, or in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, talking about freedom and how the freedom in Christ we have is the freedom not just from condemnation, it's the freedom to love. And all of the freedom that we have in Christ moves us eventually towards love. Last week, we talked about how that freedom calls us into this growth in the Holy Spirit. But it's not just about changing our behavior on the surface. It's a, 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 it's a change of our character and who we are by the power of the Holy Spirit, changing our whole selves into the character of Christ, not just behavior modification with a Christian bumper sticker. The Holy Spirit is changing the very fabric of who we are as we submit to him. And one of the things we, sh- we shared last week was that what unites us together as a community is that each and every one of us are works in progress. And what makes you or should make you most uncomfortable in a place like this is that you think you've got it all figured out, that you think you've already arrived. And that's exciting. I'm excited where we're moving today as we jump into what is a bedrock passage for us, not only as individuals, but I believe for where we are as a 
community as well. So let's look here in our passage, Romans chapter 8. I want to read it for us, and then let's pray together. It says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Let's pray. We do, Lord, want to share in your glory. That word means weight and significance. And Lord, what I pray over us today is that we would feel the weight of your love for us. And that the other things in this life, our circumstances, our trials, the words that have been spoken over us that have wounded us, that the weight of your love would push aside everything. And that we would feel the security and significance that you've spoken over us in Christ as we come to your word that is living and active because you, God, are living and active. Help us now, help me now to listen and to respond to what you want to say to us today as a community. And we pray this in your name. All God's people say, amen. Well, I want you to picture with me today a small, diverse collection of men and women who are gathered perhaps evening around a room, maybe a small courtyard. They're sharing a meal under the light of oil lamps. It's a bustling and loud room full of different kinds of backgrounds and different places in society. And as the conversation rolls and as the wine continues to be poured and the bread is broken, a woman stands up by the name of Phoebe. She's an out-of-towner. She's new. But she stands and she unfurls this letter that's to be read and explained out loud. And so the room begins to fall at a hush. This is a letter from Paul. In the first century, these Christians would have heard of this Paul who at one time was persecuting and killing Christians, but now had met the risen Jesus in a way that had profoundly transformed not only who he was, but the very mission of his life. So these words to this new fledgling church in Rome, they were to be listened to. But he sends this woman, Phoebe, to read and interpret these words of hope in challenge. In the first century, as you sent a letter, there was no, uh, there was no postal service, so you would send it on behalf of you with someone who would read and interpret what you were saying. Phoebe was sent to be the first person to preach Romans. And what they're about to hear is what we are hearing today. Romans 8, the whole of the scriptures do not arrive in a vacuum as if they are empty theological words that we're supposed to parse out together, they were written to and delivered to a very real community like ours with very real challenges like ours. And like most of the early churches, it was a community of both 
Jews and non-Jews, there was massive cultural differences under the same roof. There were Jewish believers who were still holding to much of the Mosaic law, and there were Gentile believers who were non-Jews and were not living under the Mosaic law. They both had faith in Jesus, but the way they operated in this faith in Jesus were very, very different. And yet, they'd been called together as one big, messy, diverse family. So when Paul speaks to us in Romans 8 about the Holy Spirit and identity, it's not just simply an individual encouragement for you and I. It's calling us into a common communal identity. Notice here that Paul writes, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. My friends, the Holy Spirit is a communal spirit. The Holy Spirit is not separated into our own individual capacities as if we get one little part of one separate bunch of things. The Holy Spirit in me is the Holy Spirit in you. And the beauty of the Holy Spirit is that I get to see God alive in you in a way I don't see in me. And the beauty of the church is that the Holy Spirit in you is alive and unique in a way that I don't get to understand fully unless I come into community with you. It's always moving us away from a me-centered faith to a we-centered faith. And and this, this work he's doing in us always has me elements to it, always emphasizes the individual, but it's also in the power of the Holy Spirit calling us to big we promises. Now that word Abba in the Aramaic is the word for father. This is the word that we see Jesus use often in prayer, in the Lord's prayer. It's how he relates to God. Very revolutionary to understand and relate to God, not as a distant, angry figure out there, but a father who knows, loves, cares for us intimately. But right there beside Abba, we have the Greek word pater, which also means father. Paul doesn't use one or the other. Why? Because there's a new kind of family being born. This is the kind of family that in Galatians 3 it says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is not only making a declaration here about how we relate to God as Father, but how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We cannot make the mistake of seeing this as separate realities. If God is our Father, we by nature have a family. If God is our Father, we have brothers and sisters. To know God as our Father is not just an individual experience. It is an entry into a new kind of family where we have brothers and sisters that sit beside us and walk with us who are like and also unlike us. If God is our Father, we have a family. We cannot separate those things. Look with me again here in verse 15. It says, That the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but rather the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. So in the time of Jesus and Paul, slaves were most of the time indentured servants paying off debt. Um, At at times, 
the, in Rome, they were prisoners of war. And so it wasn't exactly the same as the chateau slavery we see in the American South in our history. But nevertheless, it was something where there were stratospheres of status and privilege. And but put, it, but put it this way, at least. You could be in the same room but not have a place at the table. Have you ever understood a, a reality like that? Or maybe you've experienced that yourself. You felt like you could be in the room, but you didn't really have a place at the table. You're there, but you don't belong. Now, what Paul tells us that in Christ, you and I, as sons and daughters of God, we're not just at the room, in the room. We have a seat at the table. We don't just get to stand and watch. We get to sit and receive and belong. We belong in Christ as sons and daughters. Meaning that when we gather and we take communion and we sing these songs, we, we don't just sing about our identity. We celebrate that we have access, common access to the Father in heaven. Once again, let's remind us here today that Romans 8, it's not just a me promise. It is a we promise for us. When there are differences in our, the room, and believe me, there will be differences in the room, it's easy for hierarchies to form. It's easy on our own to gravitate to the people who look and who think and who act and who vote like us. And when we do, we create hierarchies intentionally or not, of privilege, of who is in and who is out, who has access and who does not. This was happening in the, in the church in Rome, and it was creating tensions of this access and privilege. It was impacting who really had a voice, who really had a seat at the table. You see, the Jews, they looked down on the Gentiles because they weren't as religious as they were. They weren't as devoted as they were. And Gentiles, they looked down on the Jews because look at these backwards religious people who don't have the freedom that we do. There was this common sense we can tell from the letter that the tension was rising. And Romans 8, my friends, is a megaphone beyond just theological truth for us. It is a megaphone that says, in this family, all of us have a seat at the table. You don't just get to be in the room. You get to come and sit as a son and a daughter. You get to receive. Suddenly in Christ, there is no them. There is only us. And here's where this gets really cool. Notice Paul says adoption to sonship. And that's hard for us modern folks to comprehend this because in the ancient world, the firstborn male like, carried the identity and privilege of the family as the heir to the father. This was a patriarchal society. So daughters, sorry you were not afforded those rights in that time. You might think, why would Paul use this word sonship? Is he centering the privilege of men Many today would say yes. Are women on the outside looking in in the kingdom of God? Are women those who just have a place in the room but not a seat at the table? I want you to remember, though, who's preaching Romans right now? Phoebe. Phoebe 
is preaching the first sermon that Romans was ever preached by a woman. Guess who in Romans chapter 16, Paul mentions and calls out as a fellow apostle, a woman by the name of Junia. When Paul says you've been adopted into sonship, it's a promise to men and women that all of you have the privilege of the firstborn, not just the men. All of you have the access of the firstborn to the father, not just the men. It is breaking down not only the cultural and socioeconomic barriers that they have between us, it's breaking down the barriers and the hierarchies we've created in the church for men and women that many, many are fighting to uphold right now. But in Christ, my sisters, I want you to know, you belong in every capacity of leadership in the church you belong. That's why Paul continues, now if we are children, it says then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Let's keep doing that. Man, this is such a cool passage. It's an astounding truth and it speaks to you and I, our character in Christ, because what Jesus in this, what we see is that what he's won for us in the cross, he has also shared with us. That as heirs in God, as heirs, co-heirs with Christ, what we have in the cross, what Jesus has won on our behalf, has been offered over to us as sons and daughters of God. There's so much to unpack here that we don't have time to, but I want to point out two particular things about what this means for us to be co-heirs with Christ. First, as heirs, we know now that we live from abundance and not from scarcity. The Bible tells us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The old verse says he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, meaning that God is the God of all abundance. And in Christ, we have access to this abundance. And what I'm not preaching today is a prosperity gospel that if you don't grow your bank account, then you're not faithful. What it means that there is abundance is that there's always enough to go around in the family of God. That I have what you need and you have what I need. And out of the generosity of the Holy Spirit, as we walk together as a church, that abundance drives out the scarcity that thinks that you and I have to compete for what we have in the gospel. That you and I have to stand up and against one another for the resources in the kingdom of God. But in Christ, our Father, as sons and daughters, has made a way for us to have everything we need. And so this is a radically different, it should be a radically different kind of community where we see need and we meet it. You know why? Because there's enough to go around. And where that need is met another need can be met, and another need, because out of the abundance of what he's given us in the kingdom of God, we know generous, generous and kindness to those in need is not just possible, it's normative. A second thing, which I want to focus most of our attention as we close here today, is that as heirs, we learn to seek unity and not uniformity. I want to talk about this again. We've talked about it several times, that uniformity is easy. Just find a bunch of people who look and think and act like you. It's easy to do this. Listen, do you know how easy it'd be to grow 
a Republican church or a Democrat church? Easy. Start throwing out the talking points. You draw a crowd, my friends. You draw a crowd. But the gospel's calling us out of uniformity into a unity as co-heirs that is often a costly unity. Because it's a unity that doesn't come from having better strategies or better books or better ideas. It is a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit. It is something that, to be honest, most of us love the idea of more than we love the practice itself. In the Roman church, Jewish believers were opening their minds and their tables to those who broke many of the covenantal laws that they believed honored God. And it also meant that Gentiles had to release judgment and make space for the convictions of those who otherwise would be their enemies if it were not for Christ. Later in chapter 15, Paul makes this clear. He says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Because I know God as Father, my friends. I know that I have brothers and sisters in this room. And because I know I have brothers and sisters, I make room at the table for those who are, are very like me and very, very unlike me as well. Even in, especially in this unity within our differences. We live in a very interesting time in the church in America. Never before has it been easier for us to choose sameness over oneness in our expressions of faith. Never has it been easier to choose uniformity over a costly and Christ-like unity. Dr. King famously said that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. And while I know we have made progress, you and I both know we've got such a long way to go. The majority of churches in America are racially, socially, and culturally homogenous. And what we often miss is that we don't strategize that into change. We love our way into change in what is not a two-month process, but is a 20, 30, 40-year process of earning trust, opening doors, and sharing tables with people often before we share pews with them. And I'm willing to go. I don't know if you know this or not, but for many, many years in the last few decades, not only was homogeny a normal part of the church process. It was being taught in seminaries and church planting. There was something called the homogenous unit principle, which taught that you can grow your church faster if you attract one kind of people. And so they encouraged you to pick a subset of people and to make them your audience. You get more people in the room who gather around and look just like you and think just like you and you can draw a crowd fast. But is that the vision of Jesus? No. We don't realize how deeply this mindset, I believe, is ingrained into our imaginations. I was reading this work, This Slow Communion by Jody Wu. She describes this captivity. I love this quote. It says, Categorizing and grouping because of an important element of the Western way of seeing the world and of thinking about oneself in relation to the world. 
Reconciliation or intimacy was replaced in the Christian imagination with the need for grouping things by like type. The church became servant to this Western way of thinking with its hierarchy and separation, for God that it was joined to a God that glories in the differences that God has created. In this way, the church forgot its identity. It has not been able to teach a way of life that it does not live, nor form disciples with an identity that allows them to see differently. This is sobering. And let me confess, my friends, today it's very hard to break that imagination. It's very hard to think and reform muscle memory spiritually that has been formed for sameness over time. It takes the hard-earned love of week-in and week-out community and sharing life together in a room like this to form something that we on our own cannot do. But the promise of Jesus is that this unity that we've been called to, in John 17, he says, is our witness. Right? It's I and them and, and you and me that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I hope you heard that. Jesus is declaring that our unity, in spite of our differences, is a witness to the gospel in this world. That the way that we come together in our differences and learn to love as a new kind of family is what the world sees and proclaims to be like Jesus. It's not a matter of if we will experience differences. It's a matter of when. It's a matter of it's already happened. And listen, some of the bigger differences that we face as a church are already out there and sometimes easy to identify and read books about racial differences, socioeconomical differences, I mean, political differences, but sometimes there are little differences that have the power to drive little bitty wedges between us. Like, how do we do church? How do we do this or that? What color is the carpet? Luckily, we don't have to worry about that. How many of you have been a part of churches that have had massive fights over decorations? And unity means that when I encounter these differences, it means that I go first in Christ and I say that what we have together is far bigger than what we do not share. And I will fight to unite with you. I will fight to love you where you are as you are. And I will fight to not just make sure that you are in the room, but that you have a place at the table with me. And I want us as a church to make a commitment today to not build a cheap and superficial unity, but to do the hard work of loving people in our differences, meeting people where they are, meeting people outside where you are comfortable sometimes, and finding, finding in Christ what we could not on our own. I want to pray for that as we receive communion. We have communion on that table back there. And some of you have already grabbed some. That's good. And as we do so, I just want you to just go to the Lord and just ask where you're at in your heart today. If there are places of division 
and hurt in you that you feel like are a barrier to the love that you know you need and desire but can't seem to find. I just want you to give that to him. God's not afraid of your hard emotions and questions and feelings. He wants to receive those. We take these elements today remembering the body and blood of Christ shed for us. We also remember that in uniting with Christ, we share this common meal remembering we have something together. You're taking the bread and the cup with people who are unlike you, who may see the world very differently, but in Christ, something miraculous happens today. Oneness happens with people who you've been brought together as a new kind of family with. So let's step into that together. Father, as we take these elements, as we remember your sacrifice on the cross for us, we remember that some of the things you've called us to are hard. And that's okay. But Jesus, you do call us beyond ourselves. You call us beyond our preferences. You call us out of our comfort and into a life that risks the love that crosses boundaries and barriers, just like you came and crossed every boundary and barrier to meet us where we are, to become like us in every way. And yet without sin, going to the cross, giving your life on our behalf and raising up to new life that we could have that same life by your spirit. We remember your gospel. Apply it.